This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, September 14th, the Growing Up in Public edition. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom of three littles, Henry, who's 11, Oliver, who's nine, and Teddy, who's six. We live in Tokyo, Japan. I'm Zach Rosen. I make another podcast. It's called The Best Advice Show. And I am dad to Noah, who's six, and Ami, who's going to be three this week. We live in Detroit. I'm Jamila Lemieux. I'm a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who's 10, and we live in Los Angeles. Well, you guys, I'm super excited about today's show. I'm talking with Devorah Haitner, who wrote the eye-opening book, Growing Up in Public. It delves into the intricate world of social media and how it's impacting our kids. I'm sure many of you, just like me, are feeling a bit perplexed about how to help kids navigate this digital landscape. Well, Devorah is here to help us find our way. So whether you're a parent, a guardian, an educator, or just curious about the influence of social media, this is a segment you're not going to want to miss. But before that, of course, we are going to share some stories from our week in parenting. And then if you're in the Slate Plus Club, we will debrief our interview with Devorah and talk about our own experience parenting young digital citizens. Here's what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. I did appreciate the note about letting your kids know that you're tracking them, which is something, you know, Naima tends to forget. And so I'll pick her phone up in front of her and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like... I'm about to read all your text messages, girl. Like, Yeah, and another thing that, that your conversation made me think of is this constant refrain that we're hearing from Noah, which is like, why do you guys get to be on your phones and I don't get a phone? And I'm like, good point. And then I put it down. As a Slate Plus member, you'll get a whole bonus segment every week and all your favorite Slate podcasts ad-free. It's truly the best way to listen and the best way to support the show. You can sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash Plus. All right, we're going to jump into triumphs and fails as soon as we get back from this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, Jamila, what have you been up to this week? Starting off the week with a fail. <laughs> Yesterday, I got up. 
I haven't been sleeping well lately. Like, I feel like I'm only getting like an hour or two of sleep per night. Even oh my god. Oh no! Like I just toss and turn, and I don't fall asleep. And I take a sleeping pill, and it's not working. And it's been going on for about five or six days now, so it's not good. Um, so anyway, I go to wake Naima up, and I try to wake her up. And I try to wake her up, and she won't wake up. And so I said, you know what? I mean, she's breathing, you know, yeah. but she's not. Thanks for waking. clarifying. <laughs> Yes, but she's not waking up. And I said, okay. And I went back to the bed. Yeah. Um, I was just so exhausted. And she was sniffling and not feeling well the night before. And I was like, well, she's sick. We're just having a sick day. You know. And when she finally did get up, she was still sniffling and not feeling so great. And we took a COVID test, but it was negative. And I feel like Naima could have went to school. I was just so tired. Totally. Did you go to yeah. bed after you decided that it was going to be a sick day? Yes. You were able to get some sleep then? I got some rest. I wouldn't say I fell asleep, but I rested. Hmm. What's going on? Is it deadline woes? I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Do you feel like your mind can't shut off or you're just like laying in bed? Just the the sleep is not coming. The sleep is just not coming. Oh. You know, like my mind is shutting down. Like I'm not like my thoughts aren't racing. You know, yeah. I'm just like... Hmm, here I am. That's the worst. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that sucks. But this was Naima's second week of school? Third. Okay. Maybe All four. Right. This is the fourth week of school. <laughs> now we're just in that school. I feel the same way. I'm like, we've we're just, just started. We're just, we're just in it now. Yeah. But yet maybe we're a month in. <laughs> is she feeling better now? She is. Okay, good. Good. Zach, how's your week? Uh, my week is going all right. In, in fact, uh, we had a great weekend because we had a wedding i love a wedding and it was a camp wedding in which no kids were invited and so we had to get some coverage and as you know we have grandparents galore here thank goodness and so Shira and i got to spend two nights away from the kids at this beautiful camp in northern michigan um hanging with friends doing archery. I hadn't done archery since the mid-90s. It's as fun as I remember. The kids were well taken care of by Shira's folks one night and then my dad and stepmom the second night. And it, it was so nice. And I don't know about you all, but the thing that I love about weddings the most is the speeches. And there were some really good speeches, especially from the bride's mom. And it was just like, if you can muster up the 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 composure and creativity to like make a beautiful speech for your child like it seems like it seems like just like a, a a peak parenting talk about triumphs like this is like i bet she's been taking notes on this for years and years the the mother of the bride and it was it was just not not a dry eye in the house it made me think about you know my kids maybe one day getting married and it was uh it was just a, a love fest so couldn't ask for anything more um from the wedding the kids listen to my parents. We learned that they go to bed easier for the parents than they do for us because Ami's been <laughs> such a pain in the ass at night lately. Um, but he, he listened for them and went to sleep at a reasonable hour and it was a triumph. That's a huge triumph. Yeah. And a camp wedding, that sounds so fun. So fun. And I like, haven't done a camp wet. Like, oh my God. Were you in like cabins? Yes. There? We were in a cabin. Oh my gosh. We went swimming in the lake. Shira did arts and crafts. 
And this I thing about this. The, the no kids allowed, like I, I felt bad for some of our friends who have kids who don't have grandparents in the area because they pl- because they had to pay like an arm and a leg mm-hmm. to get coverage, you know, to pay a babysitter for overnight. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I hadn't um, even thought about those economics, but I mean, what would you guess it costs for a babysitter to take care of two young kids for 48 hours? I can't even think about it because it's so, ex- well, the overnight is so expensive. I don't know. I don't know. Just tell $400. me. $400? $900. Yeah. Is what, what they charged. Because they're still, char- what they did was they charged like their regular babysitting rate of 20 an hour plus an overnight of like, I don't know, 12, 13 an hour or something to sleep. So they're getting paid to sleep. But I mean, this was like, you know, the the groom, one of the groom's best friends. So he wasn't going to miss it. But I felt, I felt awful. Like, man, that's, that's quite a premium to pay. But um, I guess that's what people do who aren't lucky enough to have free childcare. So man, $900. What's going on with you, Elizabeth? I'm taking a triumph because this weekend I went away without the kids, Mm. without Jeff. I signed up for a um, yoga retreat before we even got here. I, like a friend I met on Facebook, (laughs) hooked me up with this group and I saw on their page, um, they have like a WhatsApp group for people in Tokyo. It's all English, you know, speaking and people ask questions on there. And someone had posted on there uh, this yoga retreat and I kind of hemmed and hawed about it. And a bunch of my friends were like, just just sign up for it. Just sign up for it. So I was like, okay. So I signed up before I even got here and knew no one <laughs> and showed up Friday and there was a typhoon hitting. And so as we are like leaving Tokyo, so we went in like three cars <laughs> with these women, I don't know. And we drove through this typhoon to get to a house on the beach. It was supposed to be like an hour drive. Wow. It ended up being like four and a half hours. Oh, my God. Closing. Um, but you know what, guys? I forged some friendships through fire. There is nothing like Heck speaking yeah. no Japanese in a car when roads are closed and landslides are <laughs> happening to just really be like we this is all we have it was amazing though and then we you know got to the house we did yoga someone cooked um these were all people that wanted the same like i i think just by having this be this kind of retreat where we were doing yoga and we were um journaling and getting to talk about you know being here in tokyo was sort of like already this kind of down select of people who were interested in kind of the same things Yeah, yeah and so it was really nice i mean i my goal was sort of like, okay, I'm going to leave here with two <laughs> phone numbers and ended up kind of this whole group is still chatting and sharing things and um, sharing book recommendations and places to go. So it was it was really great. Do they all live in Tokyo? They all live in Tokyo. Great. They're all like from all kinds of backgrounds, just they all speak English, I would say, is the uh, people the from <laughs> embassies, jobs, you know, different wow. different things around here. It was really great. The kids were totally fine, and because of the typhoon, I literally could not speak to Jeff. Like, I didn't, I was able to squeak out a few, like, emails to be like, hey, I'm safe, um, but didn't talk to the kids, didn't talk to Jeff, was just sort of like, it's going to be fine. Everybody was fine. Jeff sent um, Henry to the grocery store by himself, and he did the grocery shopping. Like, I feel like without me here, it was actually, it was really good, and I came back feeling very, very renewed, which was great. Good for you. And it was fine. It was great. I should go again. 
Yes, you absolutely should. I know. Well, on that note, we are going to take another quick break. And when we get back, we will be joined by Devorah Haitner. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back, and I'm now joined by Devorah Haitner. Devorah has been talking with kids about how they use social media for a long time, and she also helps grown-ups worry less and mentor kids better within these spaces. Her first book was called Screenwise, and her most recent is called Growing Up in Public. I hope you enjoy this interview, and we'll catch you on the other side. So, like, when I go out and speak, a lot of folks would come up to me and say, thank you so much. This is so empowering. I'm going to talk to my kids so differently about tech and think about my own tech use and how I'm modeling. But I'm still so glad that my middle school years, high school years, and yes, even college years were not shared on social media. What do you got for that, Devorah? Yeah. Because that's nuts. <laughs> and none of yeah. us really would want those years you know, shared in perpetuity and being able to be screenshot and you know, used against us, right? Right. I really appreciate that as an elder millennial, like all of my AIM messages that I would have out there. And like, like when those kind of pop back up on things, I'm like, oh, yikes. But then imagining that with pictures and videos and all of this other information out there. Your book, Growing Up in Public, is designed, at least in what I took away, like to empower families to make their own rules and decisions for keeping kids safe online. And there isn't really a one-size-fits-all solution, which I think is sort of disappointing for a lot of parents. You know, we get a a lot of letters like, well, what exactly can we do? Can you talk a little bit about the factors we should be looking at to make this plan with our families about how we are approaching kind of all of this digital stuff with them? Well, we want to start about thinking about our own modeling. We want to think about what we're sharing about our kids, asking permission if we are sharing our kids on social media. Also making sure that we're talking with kids about just communication decisions. You know, if we're texting someone and it's getting stressful or tense, this is why we might want to switch to a phone call. And we we want to actually talk kids through that because they're just watching us kind of like thumb out our lives in front of them, but they're not learning very much from, they're not learning from our wisdom, frankly, and our experience. 
So one of the things we can do is just make sure they they talk, we talk about that. Another thing we can do is help kids learn to problem solve situations ideally before they come up, but the reality is sometimes it's going to be afterwards and we're going to be, you know, helping them do that postmortem. But thinking about, okay, what are you going to do if you're on text, a group text and everybody's like, let's start a new group text, you know, without this person? Or what are you going to do if everyone starts talking in a mean way about, you know, somebody on the text, somebody off the text? What are the ways you could respond? And helping kids kind of be ready for some of the more common scenarios. How will you help yourself feel better if you feel left out because of something you see online? So many of these experiences are almost universal. And so rather than, you know, wait for them to happen, we can kind of anticipate at least a few of the main ones and work on them before our kids even have phones. And it seems like some of that conversation, like you just said, needs to happen even earlier than we think about it happening. Because it seems like there's this zone where the kids are still like they're capable of understanding this, but still uh, view us as someone who might provide guidance versus like, if we don't start approaching this until they are teens, and now they have this phone. So so do you have some tips on how we can be introducing these to younger kids? I mean, are you literally talking about just saying, you know, what to your eight year old, your nine year old, even younger than that? Or should we be saying like, these are the situations that are happening to me? Are we are we role playing at that age? Like, how do those conversations start? A lot of it is also looking at what goes on with your kid in person, or a lot of eight and nine-year-olds are on Roblox or Minecraft or interacting in other digital communities. Some kids have phones at that age too, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So, cause I'm going out to schools and I'm, you know, the age seems to go down like every day, like I'll be in a fourth grade and, you know, a bunch of kids will have phones. So, but even if they're not using personal devices like a phone, they're definitely communicating via these shared communities like Roblox or they're in the school Google Doc and they're using that to talk to everyone in the third grade or whatever. So I think it is younger than we think that we need to talk about these things, but you can see where your kid is strong and and where they're doing well and where they're struggling. You can see if they're having trouble with turn-taking or getting too mad when they game. And that doesn't mean your kid shouldn't game anymore, but it may mean that like a certain amount is good to build frustration tolerance and then they need a break, or it may be that certain games aren't a fit for them if they're going to nuke all their friendships, right? So we really want to look at how is my kid doing at this stuff? What are the areas where they struggle? Do you have a kid who is a real people pleaser and will just say yes to giving anyone their contact information? That's a kid who may need to work on boundaries. Um, do you have a kid who is super competitive when they game and they may need to work on, you know, how to relate to people when they game so they again don't, you know, disrupt their friendships? So it, there, there's so many, you know, issues depending on your kid's personality and what they're drawn to. It seems to me that privacy is kind of at the heart of of this problem, right? Because when we are using these devices, there's this idea that maybe it's it's private or it's personal. I think so many of us are afraid of these bad things happening and our kids either not coming to us or us not knowing, right? Like now we have the ability to know all the stuff we want to know all the things. Um, but we don't necessarily think through like, what we're going to do when it happens. So, I mean, I was thinking as I was uh, reading the book, like in the situation where you're geo-tracking your kid, maybe they know, but then you notice they're at an address that you didn't, you know, you don't know and you didn't know they were going there. It's like, okay, well, now you know, what are you going to do about it? Exactly. 
Exactly. And in, in, I mean, one of the stories I wrote about in the book was a mom who figured out that her kid was probably in a romantic relationship. And it's like, well, may, do you want to just like maybe wait for him to tell you that? Like, do you want to know? Like, there are reasons people keep relationships private early on, you know, and, and that may not be the situation. Like, but it, it doesn't mean something dire. Like your kid visiting someone new, for example, doesn't mean they're going to that house to buy drugs, for example. Like, there's probably a lot of other good explanation. So unless you have other evidence, I mean, yeah, if your kid's also like sleeping through school and, you know, has red eyes or has, you know, there's a bunch of things going on that are telling you like, oh, my kid is, you know, using drugs or my kid is abusing alcohol or my kid is abusing prescription meds. Like, of course you want to intervene and find out what's going on um, and get them some support and help. But like knowing that they've gone to a new address, that is not in and of itself concerning. Right. Like, I almost thought of it as like, do you have probable cause (laughs) to use this thing that you have? You know, like you have this tool. Should you be using it? And I mean, this whole discussion, the, the mentoring over monitoring goes back to this larger idea you have, which is like everything we're doing in parenting is should be in pursuit of like preparing our kids for adulthood, and and so how does this play into that, right? Like how does how we help their monitor their digital stuff or choose not to monitor, how does that play into the life skills we hope that they have? Right. Because you'll, you'll probably still be paying their phone bill in college, but hopefully you're not tracking their location. But I talked to parents who were tracking their kids' location in college and thinking like their kids skipped class. I'm like, well, maybe they left their phone in the dorm room and just went to class without their phone. But if they are skipping class again, is that something you need to know? And I think a lot of parents just don't think about like how incredibly invasive it is to be keeping, you know, essentially an ankle bracelet on your on your kid and how little that's preparing them to be independent. I mean, just yesterday, my kid was at an amusement park, you know, and I dropped off and other parents were picking up. And I think he, I knew he was kind of probably going to be there longer than he wanted to because I knew he was going to get outvoted by the friends who wanted to stay till close. And I was like, I could hover, you know, in this other place an hour away from my house and just like wait for him to be done and like whisk him away the second he's ready to go. But that's not realistic. That's not real life. Real life is like, okay, well, our ride is coming in a couple hours. So what do I do with myself? I'm kind of done going on roller coasters. What do I do with myself until I have a ride home? I was struck too by like, you talk a lot about not fixing their problems. Like we have this opportunity I guess if you look at the use of, of, you know, social media, texting, all that kind of the digital stuff as an opportunity to help them get through these challenges that we know we're going to have as adults, right? Like, we have these friendship things, we uh, text a friend in anger about our spouse or about our partner, right? And it's not that we wouldn't, like, we couldn't have our partner see that, but it, it is we were letting off steam, like these sort of things. And using this as an opportunity for, like you said, for them to make mistakes or come to us. And and that's part of that mentoring, right? To be there when they fall uh, and help them get back through it. And I, and I love that that example, though, because they may do that about you. And, and I wrote yeah. about this in Growing Up in Public, where, you know, your kid may be on vacation, like kind of fronting to their friends about what a crummy time they're having. They may actually be having a good time every other minute. I mean, those of us who've traveled with teenagers, like they may be actually 
you know, and, and it may be their fault that the trip is crummy too, because they may be being such pills that it's difficult to, you know, enjoy. But generally, they're probably having fun, but maybe it's just not cool to admit to your friends, you know, because you want your friends to know you miss them and how much they're valued. And so in that conversation, as a teenager, you're going to be like, oh, I so wish I wasn't in Paris with my dumb parents, even though they might actually really have dug some experience they just had in Paris or, you know, whatever, New York City or wherever you're with them. But they're going to be like, to their friends, like, oh, this is such a drag. I wish I was back with you all, you know? And if you see that, you might be like, this is a stake through my heart. I saved up for five years for this trip. I always wanted to take my teenager here, but that wasn't for you. Yeah. And and even more so if they're actually legitimately like mad at you and trying to work something out and saying like, oh, I'm, I'm in a big fight with my mom, you know, whatever. And again, they're going to represent their side of the story. And if you read that, that's not necessarily going to be helpful. Just like when I was walking home from middle school and my friend said, I hate my mother. And I was like, oh, I think I do too. Like, and I didn't even know it was such an earth shattering moment because I didn't know you could say that out loud. But I think for me, at least in that moment, like in that moment, I really felt that and believed that, but it wasn't that like an ongoing feeling. I mean, I, you know, I know adults who are estranged from their parents, right? Like for someone that might be like a realization of something that, but for me, it was like a very momentary you know, my mother and I had a very rocky, stormy relationship, and especially in those years. And I think it's important for kids to have the space to talk with their friends and for us to not be on the inside of that. I don't need to know if my kid is complaining about me and saying, oh, it's so burdensome to have a mother who writes about screen time. And I feel like she overthinks everything. And, you know, can I just, you know, get on Discord? Like, why is my mom such an overthinker about this? And she, you know, she talks about it so much. She thinks about it all the time. Like if that, you know, like I, I happen to know that my, my kid does find yeah. that to be a pain in the neck, but it, you know, if he wants to complain to his friends about it, like, that's why I don't need to read that. You know, just like, again, if you're complaining about your kid and you had a rough day with them or whatever, like that's where you might not want to share it on social media, but maybe that is a text to your sister or something, you know, or like a best friend or, or a therapist, not a public social post that your kid could later see. Cause I do think that's not necessarily a great thing. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about like, when I was reading this about how, if you're reading every text, how easy it would be to lose the context of like, this is them complaining and go to your head, like, well, they're so rude and they're so ungrateful. And now I want to take their phone cause they're doing this as opposed to, like you said, viewing this as like, this is a healthy way for them to deal with this. And thank goodness they're doing this instead of screaming at me, (laughs) you know, when they come through the door, like, wouldn't you rather them shoot something off to a friend that they have a relationship with? And the friend could be like, yeah, that's the worst, right? And then they can come to the door and still be like, thanks for dinner, I guess. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like on a good day. (laughs) Yeah, on a good day. Or just ignore you. (laughs) And we know that humans find community through complaint and kvetching and all of that. And I mean, I've learned, you know, in my like almost 50 years that like, in fact, kvetching sometimes brings me down, but that was like, had to be my own realization. But I think in general, a lot of teenagers, you know, do kind of complain and and co-regulate jointly by like, oh, school sucks, life sucks, whatever. And I think that's really a part of the rite of passage of, of being a teenager. And again, as a parent, The tricky thing is if you're reading that, how do you separate that from a kid who is actually in crisis and is actually in distress versus a kid who is just kind of in the moment experiencing big emotions, which is part of being an adolescent. So that's where it's helpful sometimes for me to talk to a mental health professional to just even check in about like, how worried should I be about X or Y and kind of just get like gauge. Because my, my, I will say like, I am a really anxious parent. And so for me, 
a it's it's a conscious choice not to have too much information because I that's my tendency in general. I I keep the grading apps also turned off on my main device and I only check them on the computer. Like I don't check them on the phone. I think for a lot of parents, that's really helpful to not have too easy access to checking your kids' grades. Because once you start kind of getting hooked on checking them all the time, it gets easy to worry about little things. And it's also can really undermine the relationship between kids and their teachers. If the parents are, you know, reaching out to the teacher and it's just too much. It's a lot of teachers feel really frustrated by those apps as well. I think even knowing all this, it, it's like on top of that now there's growing research about kind of the mental health crisis with teens and the role that phones, internet, social media is playing in all, all of that. I, I mean, my friends, it seems like, uh, again, I'm 40, my oldest is 11. I feel like my friends are starting to say like, we should push off the phone. You, even if it's useful, like let's just not give them a phone or let's not let them have social media. Like we're constantly kind of checking in about this, but where, where should we be going? <laughs> it's like the loaded question. Where should we be going with this? Like, is the answer push it off as long as possible? I, I know, you know, some of the answer is this mentoring and talking about it. And I think we've been doing that, but it also just feels like, gosh, we know this is, so bad? Is there some kind of middle ground between, you know, throwing them, I think, kind of into it almost feels like the dark ages, like, well, you don't get a phone. And that's just my that's just your mom. Sorry, right? You know, and I mean, I've said that, like, we just are not doing that. I I think delay makes sense in some cases. I mean, certainly think when we talk about the like the single digit ages of kids, and they've got watches, and then their parents are texting them on the watches during the day. I think for a lot of kids that may be adding stress, for some families, maybe families with two households or families with complex after-school, you know, sort of care needs, it may be necessary. And so I think every family is really different, but I certainly think we can limit, if we do get kids a device in those single-digit or early double-digit years, we can certainly limit the contacts they have on that device. It could just be for contacting caregivers, for example. Um, the reality is there's going to be mission creep, though, because most of these devices do so many things. And so the second you have a watch or even a simple phone, it's going to be, you know, a gaming device. It's going to have the Internet unless there are some sort of baby phones in a way that are like starter phones that don't have the Internet, which is, you know, kind of handy if you want your kid just to be able to text. And those are probably a better solution for today's kids than flip phones, which a lot of people think about. But the reality is kids who've grown up on touch touch screens can't stand flip phones, not just the look of it, which is very retro, but even just having to type a letter multiple times to get to the, you know, they're just like, what? Oh my God. I tried to get my kid to use a flip phone a few years ago. And he was just like, this is the worst technology ever. And I was like, it's not the worst, but I do see how cumbersome it is. If you grew up with an iPad in your hand, right? Like it's going to feel pretty bad, pretty, pretty poorly designed. So I think delay is only one strategy though. I think delay coupled with mentorship and recognizing that if your kid is on Minecraft on a desktop in your basement or your kid is on Roblox or Fortnite with all their friends, they're already in it. Yeah. You know, and that, that conversation could be happening. Like they could be talking during the game on discord, which is really technically, I think 12 or 13 and up, but like most, many kids are using that younger. They could be talking on Google Hangouts. You know, and the Google Hangout conversation is as good as it is. Like, you know, if you're with people who are not nice, then it's it might not be nice. Um, so, I mean, the, most of these technologies are neutral, the, the technology itself. I mean, you can argue that the design features, like the like button and other things really get us where we're the most human and we're the most vulnerable. 
But a lot of it is really neutral. Like a Google Hangout is neutral until somebody tells you a terrible thing on your Google Hangout, right? And then suddenly it's not so neutral. It's not a neutral experience. Or unless someone, you know, uh, records you without your permission on a Zoom or something else. Like there's all of these technologies that feel so neutral. The group text, that fifth or sixth or seventh grade group text can be a toxic stew of terribleness. It can be an innocuous bunch of emojis. It can be very sweet. And it can be, what's the homework? And it can be all of those things in one day. And it probably is all of those things in one day. And so I think that's where we have to decide how vulnerable is my kid from being out of it and into it. And then your kid is going to be asking him or herself the same question because sometimes they'll want to get out of a situation, but they also don't want to be talked about. So they will be like, oh, this seventh grade group text is horrendous, but I also don't want to leave. And that's where... In some ways, you could argue that parents might be doing the kid a favor if they're, you know, if if you're not in that deep end until maybe junior high age. Um, but I think you're right too that kids are going to be more compliant with adult expectations around the ways they use tech at a younger age. That's why, as much as I completely respect the folks who do wait until eighth, and I, I like have talked to some of them, I think they're nice, thoughtful people. And in some ways, I agree, like it would be nice if people waited. I also think eighth grade is the nadir of judgment in most people's lives. Eighth grade is when I did the things I regret the most and said the things I regret. Like, I cannot think of a worse year for more more people that's like universally. I mean, you could be like the nicest person in the world and you probably said something horrible in eighth grade. So I'm like, okay, so we're going to wait until eighth and then give them the phones. Like, that's going to be great. Like in some ways, and again, this is not me arguing for giving a phone to your fifth or sixth grader, but in some ways, you want a kid who's going to do it the way you want them to do it. Like that's the age where I say they have it an hour a day and you're like, these are the rules. Like they're going to be pretty compliant at that age. Yeah. I Like you said, there, there's a lot of like not wrong, not right answers. And we all know it's complicated and we just can't seem to figure it out, which leads me to my incredibly loaded question, which is, if you could wave your magic wand (laughs) and make, you know, like your ideal sort of teen parent social media scenario, this is what we're doing. Does it look like the elimination of social media? Does it look like implementing education programs? Are you going to restrict access to social media? Like these are all tools we've seen. What would you put in place? (laughs) And that's a great question. I mean, I do think design wise, I would love to see the companies that are profiting so much, you know, your TikToks and your metas and your other big companies do more to respond to reported harassment, you know, things like at the worst, like sextortion of kids or any kind of threat, bullying, impersonation accounts. I'd like to see them be much more responsive and and helpful to families and kids experiencing that kind of thing. And I'd like to see more protections. You know, a lot of teenage girls reported just gross, gross sexual harassment on their apps. And and, and when I see teenage girls and kids as young as your kid, like 11, 12, they're getting on Instagram. And like the first message they get is like a sugar daddy DM, you know, for a sixth or seventh grader. Not that it would be okay for a high school student or college student, but they might be a little bit more equipped to deal with that. But, you know, you're getting these very young kids getting these very gross messages and by the time I talk to them at like 15 or 16, for most of the girls I talk to, they're like, oh yeah, the, there's the gross DMs that you get if you're on these apps. <laughs> and they're just accepting yeah. that as like part of the just price of being online. So I think that there needs to be more protections and more ways of reporting and blocking that really work 
Because I, I mean, I know, like, I find the same things come back up, or I was impersonated for a bit on Twitter, and it was a whole mess. And like, they really did nothing to help me. It really took, you know, having a bunch of helpful friends that kind of fixed it. So I think it's really important that the, the companies are responsible. I do think schools ideally would be doing much more on media literacy, on helping kids understand news, on helping kids evaluate sources, on understanding the sort of performative nature of social media so that it's less pernicious for sharing and comparison, for body image. And again, ideally, the worst kinds of content, anything that promotes eating disorders or self-harm would be removed um, because it's so dangerous. And I think that gets really tricky. I mean, I'm someone who also, you know, believes in and have friends who work with like the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You know, so I'm like fighting with myself as someone who like my first job was in a library and I'm all about free speech and I want a free and open internet. And I don't want your 11 year old or my 14 year old to get how to self-harm, how to, you know, hide a disordered eating from your parents, um, you know, how to buy illegal drugs uh, without your parents knowing, get them delivered to your house on Snapchat. Like none of those things are good, right? Like we don't want those things. Um but I love social media as a space for neurodiverse kids to connect and for queer kids to connect and um, for kids to find affinity in, uh, on their interests, you know, wh- whatever their interests may be, whether it's crafting or anime or there's so much that's positive, you know, activism. And we see tremendous teenage activism happening and and people connecting and being recognized and frankly, being recognized in a way that they probably wouldn't. If- if social media didn't exist, right? And having a different way to speak truth to power than if social media didn't exist. So it, it, the fact that social media gives everyone a platform is, you know, good and bad, right? So it's really, it's it's a lot to manage. So I guess I don't have a perfect design answer, but I do think that it would be amazing if parents could do a really good job helping their kids navigate sleep, helping kids navigate problematic content. And if kids had more choices about reporting, if they're being harassed, maybe they can't go to their parents. Maybe they're not out to their parents. In a case of a kid who's transgender or some, you know, a kid who's has something going on or a part of their identity, an aspect of their identity that their family isn't aware of, but they're being harassed about that part of their identity, there should be ways to report that are effective. But right now, you really need an adult advocate to effectively deal with a lot of situations online. And so we want to be those people for our kids. And that's why we don't want to be so punitive. And it's kind of, you know, we don't want to tell them like, oh my gosh, if you ever send a nude, like I'm going to be so upset and disappointed. You want to say like, that's probably not a very safe way to express your sexuality. It's also like illegal in X state, which it's illegal in just basically every state for minors to do it. But also if you're in a jam or you or your one of your friends is like an underwear picture circulating, I will help you. Yes, yes. Cut, and I like, know. you know, and Cindy, the lawyer will help you. Like we will be all over yes. that. Like, <laughs> yeah, because nobody gets to harass or, you know, threaten you. Even if you made a mistake. Yeah, right. I mean, even I- if you did something that is considered, you know, unwise or even illegal, like especially if someone's threatening you or harassing you, they are the wrongest. You are not the wrongest. Right. <laughs> Every teenager yeah. did something silly when they have a crush, you know, yeah, that's like, 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 that's like the poster for the, the teenage years, right? Like <laughs> made a bunch of mistakes now in hopes I learned from them. <laughs> totally. And and you will, and we shouldn't create a kind of high stakes world. That's why when kids yeah. do make mistakes, ideally we as adults aren't recirculating them, even if it makes us feel sort of righteous or we can't believe that a kid in our community said X or Y, you know, we don't want to amplify the harm the kid caused by saying the terrible thing. And you never know what video or photo might be out there of your kid. Like you hope and pray and think you, they would never, she would never, he would never. 
you don't know. That's right. (laughs) And it only takes once. You just heard an interview with Devorah Haytner, author of Growing Up in Public. We'll put links to her work in the episode notes. And that's our show. Please subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you have a question for us or a topic you want us to address, please email us at slate.com. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson and Maura Curry. Shasha Leonard is the voice of our listeners. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. For Zach Rosen and Jamila Lemieux, I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. Thanks for listening.